Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're going to figure out all the incredible ways we're going to be able to have an amazing retirement by following the best investors in the world, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, and others who are amazing at finding wonderful businesses on sale that are compounding machines that keep uh, the rate of return above inflation because they have durable, competitive protection against competition by some quality that's intrinsic to the company. That's what we're doing right there. <laughs> and, and because we buy it at a great price, right? And because we buy it at a great price. So we find these things. <laughs> it's, a real, it's a real simple process. Not easy, but simple. Simple when you know what you're doing. It's simple. You find a, a wonderful business, and the key word is business. It's not a stock there's no difference in buying a company that's got publicly exchanged stock or a private business or a franchise or a house you're going to rent. They follow the exact same prescription in each case. Hmm. Buffett buys farms and real estate and um, private businesses and public businesses all, and so does Charlie, all with exactly the same criteria. No difference whatsoever, which I think is important. I think no. it makes it a lot more accessible to know that when I look at like the restaurant down the street versus what's some huge company, um, Netflix, I evaluate them in the same way. I may not be able to get actually as much information about the restaurant down the street as I can about Netflix, funnily enough. Right. But you do it the exact same way. Mm -hmm. exact same way. And you know what, in a lot of ways, when we're looking at the data, um, it's all about just being able to get access to the information that you need. I was thinking about this, this thing that Warren Buffett talked about where he bought a farm in Iowa, mm -hmm. having no idea about farming, he couldn't farm a farm ever, right. And, but what he did is he got the numbers on the farm and understood enough about the industry, what are they doing, they're growing corn and soybeans, pretty simple. And um, where the industry would probably go in the future, enough to make a decision about what to pay for this farm. And then he did the same exact thing with a building in New York City. Um, and he made the point, I think, that he's visited the building in New York City once and he's never been to the farm. It's like, you, you, don't, <laughs> you don't really have to go kick the tires. Where um, did you tell me about this in detail, Dad? Uh, I don't know. Where? Oh. <laughs> In our book, Invested. <laughs> oh. <laughs> in great detail. Oh, man. The farm. Listen, listen if, if I ever really just start repeating myself endlessly. Oh, I didn't think you were repeating yourself. I think it was just, a, it was a good uh, allusion to a location in which anybody who wanted to know more could. And you thought I would immediately jump all over that like a dog on a bone did, to promote fine. the book. Instead, I'll, I'll do like, it for you. I look like an idiot. So that's not at it. all. Not at all. Oh, not at no, all. No. Um, very sincere. Moving Invested on. is the book. <laughs> um, so we promised <laughs> to talk about indexes because in, in great contrast to everything you just described about buying wonderful businesses that create tons of cash flow and compound money internally and 
how you buy it at a great price and hopefully it's run by great managers and then you just stick with it. In contrast to that, if you don't want to do any of that, which who does, then, I mean, we want the results, right? But like finding the companies sounds like a lot of work. So what people often ask is how do I avoid that? Fair question, good question. And what Warren Buffett says to do is buy the stock market index. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? Well, that seems like a pretty good plan to me. <laughs> I mean, and okay, so here's why. Because he says to, if you're not going to do the work, then randomly choosing companies isn't a good idea. Put it, basically, he goes through the options without saying it. Putting your money with somebody who you're going to pay fees to isn't a good idea because they don't often actually beat the index and then you're losing based on your fees that you're paying out. Mm -hmm. And most of us don't have enough money to get taken on by a high-end financial advisor, planner, et cetera, who will put your money into very high-end kinds of funds. So what are you left with? You're left with buying an index. So that's why he says that. Well, and let's, let's be a little more clear about uh, the options that wealthier people have for um, financial advisors. Obviously, you know, the best financial advisors are going to gravitate toward, you know, a small number of clients who are really wealthy. That's obviously the case. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Buffett said the the financial advisory industry is so bizarre because people go down to visit their financial advisor who are driving down in a Rolls Royce, uh, not realizing that their financial advisor got to work on the subway. <laughs> right. So right. you well, sort of, it's, it's funny because I live in Zurich, Switzerland, and I know a number of people who do this work. And that is true. <laughs> that is true. And so it's the, the real dirty truth about the, the financial advisor industry is that, um, First off, very few financial advisors have any level of clue when it comes to picking wonderful businesses that are on sale. What they do have an enormous value for is to help someone who's wealthy manage to diversify their assets, have proper trust uh, structures with a good attorney, have good accounting, you know, deal with taxation issues, deal with the next generation, the transfer of capital from generations avoiding taxes. These are all very, very difficult problems and they are solved by some of the best financial advisors on the planet. Mm -hmm. They deserve what they get. And, but of course their clients are not people who don't have money. Their clients are people who have a lot of money and have the problems that money brings, you know, problems we, we'd all like to have more of no doubt. Um, but if you don't have a lot of money and you go to the financial services industry, what you're going to get I believe could be mostly replaced. In other words, you don't have trust issues. You don't have taxation problems. You don't have, you know, getting the money to the next generation issues. You're just trying to have a retirement. Yeah. You could probably do as well without paying any fees. And I think that's Warren's point is you don't need to be paying advisor fees. Uh, you don't need to be paying mutual fund fees. You don't need to be paying fees at all. What you need to do is go out and buy the index, which is a simple stock, SPY. You got the index. There you go. And you buy that and you're diversified. You're, you've got the stock market and you'll do as well as the stock market does and better than most people with an advisor or who are in mutual funds because you're not paying fees and those guys aren't going to beat the market. And now you're the market. So you win. And in fact, John Bogle at Vanguard 
went so far as to write a letter to the SEC a few years ago accusing Bogle is the founder of Vanguard, which is about low fee funds. It was like the inventor, basically, of low of, yeah, funds. low essentially low cost index investing. And John wrote a letter to the SEC saying it's a scandal what mutual fund investment advisors are doing, what they're charging for services because they're not beating the market anyway. And as a result, if you put your money in a Vanguard low fee fund, um, and you did that starting at age 20 years old, and you did it all the way to age 65, so 45 years of investing, just consistent whatever amount of money, right? And then compare that to somebody doing exactly the same amount of money for exactly the same amount of time, those fees eliminated 60% of that person's retirement. 60% was gone because of the advisor fees and the mutual fund fees, which is understand the math. John was, John was just like appalled when he came up with this and he sent it to the SEC. And of course, what's the SEC supposed to do? I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, you know, so it's up to you as an individual, I think, to have a brain and be able to figure this stuff out and take responsibility and decide if you want to follow some good advice. And so here's some good advice from Warren Buffett. If you don't know what you're doing, you cannot go buy a small number of companies and hope to be okay with it. You're not going to come out okay. You're going to yeah. get burned. If you don't know what you're doing, you must go buy the index. Go buy SPY and you have the S&P 500 index. Just go do that and you're done. And just do that consistently. good advice. It is. Except for one thing. <laughs> so here's what I don't understand. Oh, well, except for one thing. Go ahead. Yeah. What's, what's the one thing? Well, the one thing is that you have to be very disciplined and have a consistent amount of money going into the stock market for a long time. You have to start young in your 20s and consistently put money in there, no matter what the stock market is doing. And at the end of those 40 years, you will be comfortable in your retirement. That's for sure. The problem is most people don't have that kind of discipline and aren't making enough money to be able to live a life while they're doing all of this. So they don't have money for their kids to go to a good school. They don't have money for a good house in a good neighborhood. They don't have money to get their kid into a college. They're busy putting it away into their retirement account. Most people don't make that choice. They're going to choose for their children mm -hmm. and they're going to live a more expensive life mm -hmm. and they're going to worry about retirement later. And as a result, you end up at 45 years old, your kids finally get to college and guess what? You don't have the money and you don't have the time to follow that prescription. It and won't life, work for you. Life is just more expensive than it used to be. And we don't have the same money that we used to. As I mentioned last time, it's like crazy how much worse it's gotten for the middle class. It's crazy. I mean, think about when your grandparents were young couples starting out, they could buy a home in a nice neighborhood with really good schools, with no crime, they could buy that home for the cost of one year of a bookkeeper's salary, which today is $36,000. I would love it if anybody out there can find a home in a really good neighborhood, a new home in a really good neighborhood with good schools, with no crime, you know, for $36,000 right now, you, would you please send us a note and I will go buy up all of them. No, it wouldn't be $36,000 anymore. It would be whatever that salary is now. That is what that salary is now. When oh, your grandfather well, was... Well, then it's a different job because there aren't too many bookkeepers anymore. Excuse me. It is the same job that my bookkeepers father... Bookkeepers are getting paid $36,000 a year? 
Yeah, in Portland, Oregon, right where they were. They where my dad started out at 5000 bucks. Now a bookkeeper makes 36000 And that house that they That's bought for $5,000 costs 300000 and it's 60 years old. Wow. Well, that yeah. just shows my level of extreme privilege because I did not know that. that I is, mean, that's, that's what mean, faces keeper, the that's middle like class. Educated. Yeah, exactly. That's what faces the middle class. That is an appalling, I mean, I, I can't get my head around what that means. You take the two biggest expenses for a young family that they have to deal with if they want to have their kids do better than they did, and that is a, a good neighborhood to grow up in, right? With good schools mm -hmm. and, and kids that aren't going to take you down the wrong path as neighbors and then college paying mm -hmm. for college. And those two things, a good house in a neighborhood, just this, not, not a big house, a little house, a, just in a good neighborhood and a college education. <clears throat> Both of those things have vastly uh, outpriced the, the cost of living index massively. So Cost of living index says, okay, it makes sense that a bookkeeper making 5,000 a year in 1948 would make 36 to $40,000 here in 2018. That would, that would be the cost of living index driving up that, that wage. And that's about right. That's about two and a half, three percent 3% a year <clears throat> growth of wages. And meanwhile, the housing cost has gone from $5,000 to $300,000. Yeah. Which is insane. And what that means is instead of one of the, parents being able to, you know, stay home, raise the kids, the kids are going to daycare, they're being raised by video games. Um, the, you know, the, the parents are both working, and they're both working and struggling to even get close to buying that $300,000 house. Yeah, on a starter it's income. <clears throat> it's so extremely here's, depressing. Here's something interesting that happened, though, that is confusing to me with the index thing. Like, go put your money in indexes, okay, it's going to be okay. But as you pointed out, things are tougher now. It might not be okay. But Buffett is still into this index thing. And he actually created a whole bet a few years ago, or like eight years ago. It was in 2010. Um, he offered a bet to anybody in the hedge fund world that his, or basically the SPY, would outpace what they did as fund managers who picked companies. And he specifically offered this bet to people who um, I think chose were funds of funds, but he might've offered it to everybody. Do you know that answer, dad? He offered it out to people who would pick fund managers. Oh, to only fund a fund. I think he offered it to everybody, but the only person who took him up on it was a fund of funds. Right. Um, I don't know if that's exactly right. Okay. Um, so anyway, I think there have been a lot of there might have been a lot of guys who thought they could beat the index. Take him up on that. If it was just straight up just one I would guy. Say that too. Okay. So it was probably funds of funds. So what a fund of funds is, <laughs> this ridiculous name, is that literally it's somebody who chooses other funds to invest in. So they don't actually choose the investments themselves. It's um a middleman for lack of a better word. And what you do is you choose somebody who hopefully will diversify well and diversify into good fund managers, but more than one. So again, diversification, yay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And only one took Buffett up on it and it's called Protege Partners. And uh, 
and he lost. Protege partners lost. That's embarrassing. Oh, sorry. It For was in 2007 cause. that this happened. My notes say 10 years, but it was in 2007, so it was done in 2007. <clears throat> yeah, so this yes. guy lost. And, and what was so sort of weird about this is that Buffett himself manages money and invests it in individual companies. And so his, the idea that he was going to bet against other people who also did this was frankly kind of confusing. And I think maybe he didn't know that people didn't fully get the difference between people who do that and people who choose other funds such that they become extremely diversified. What do you think? I think that Buffett understood something about um, the nature of most people who manage money. And so he realized that if he would select, if, if, he would com if he would make this bet and bet with someone who has to choose people who manage money, whose job it is to choose a number of people who manage money, mm -hmm. the more people this person chose to manage money for him, the better the odds that Buffett would win. So, right. I was talking more about the optics of it. Yeah. Within the bet. Yes. That's, that's why he right? chose that bet. Right. So Buffett's basic view um, expressed, I would think better by Charlie Munger is um, something Charlie said in his 2015 uh, annual meeting where people were talking to him about people who do investing. He basically said, look, 95% of the people who do this kind of investing are make shamans and faith healers look good. It, and so Buffett knew his odds are extremely good that this fund of fund manager was on a fool's errand that he was trying to pick among which doctors of who was going to deliver the best medical care. And it's, in other words, Buffett had a lock and knew he had a lock as yeah. long as this person wasn't going to just pick one. Yeah. If he was just going to pick one, he might find his way maybe accidentally to the small group of people who are not shamans and faith healers who actually invest the way Buffett does and do stand a very, very high probability of beating the market, having many of them having done so for 20 years. In fact, Buffett himself points out how many of these guys who follow this prescription of investing that we teach, what we call rule one investing, where they're looking for a few wonderful businesses that they wait patiently to buy when they're on sale, that Buffett listed one after another of these people in his, in his speech at Columbia University called the Super Investors of Graham and Doddsville, pointing out that not just Warren, but a whole bunch of other people have also massively outperformed the S&P 500 index. But these are not guys who go out and choose other fund managers. Right. There's an extremely funny. small subset of investors who all happen to invest the same way. And Buffett's point about this is, by the way, that He's been criticized as being the lucky monkey who, you know, in the, in the great scheme of things, outperforms the market. There's always going to be one when the market is random. And Buffett is saying, yeah, well, it was just me. I wouldn't be able to prove that it's, I'm not just doing some random thing and I'm, I'm lucky. But if I can point out all of the people who learned to do this the way I learned to do it from the same teacher, and all of us have public portfolios and all of us are crushing the stock market, then it's not just luck. So had this fund manager been someone who would choose from that group of investors, he might have beaten Buffett. For sure. But he didn't. But what I, yes. And what I think is, is so kind of 
odd about the whole thing is that it was perceived as though Buffett chose that version of it. It was perceived as though, because this distinction is kind of fine, you know, it's kind of like people don't really see it that well. Uh-huh. And I think people saw this bet, oh, Buffett made a bet that hedge fund managers aren't going to be able to beat the market. That's the headline. And all of that came out and people started going, wow, even Buffett thinks other people can't beat the market. And yet, actually, what he chose was a fund of funds. Mm-hmm. Very different. So Very sneaky, I'm really, just not actually. Sure. Yeah, it's a, little, it's a little weird. Like, it's a little bit like, that's why it's such a, that's why we wanted to talk about it, because it was a bit confusing to everybody. Here's somebody who manages money. And who beats <laughs> the market for 60, for 60 years, with a couple of exceptions. For 60 years, exactly. Right. Who's out there going, ho, ho, ho. People can't beat the market, but there's no way he's saying that. Right. And yet he's like making a very public pronouncement about this. So it's a bit strange. And I wonder (laughs) why he does it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, it would be wonderful to ask him that. Why don't you go to Omaha? Okay. I would think that actually, I think Warren might sit down with you, you know, and answer that question. Well, he's written a pretty insightful book into his style of investing. Maybe uh, he would be willing to sit down and answer that question. I think it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, what are you saying, Warren, that you don't think anybody should try to replicate your results as an individual investor? And he might say, that's exactly what I think. I think I'm one in a billion. I mean, he essentially says that at every annual meeting since I've been paying attention, which has only been a few years. He essentially says roughly that. And, you know, usually what he says is something like, well, if you don't put your money in Berkshire, then I don't know, you know, really what else you could do except buy an index. So it's like, it's his way, it's him or nobody. It's, it's, it's sort of, I don't know, maybe he does is, think he's the only way. Which is still a, a bit confusing if you said, well, you, you know, put your money in Berkshire and uh, it's a great place to put it. Well, that's one stock. Yeah. I, I promise you there's not a financial advisor out there in the country that would feel comfortable sleeping at night if he put his clients' investments into just Berkshire. Well, I mean, it's one company that owns a bunch of companies. Right. Yeah, just like many others is what you're Like thinking. many others. Yeah. So would that mean, would that imply that if you were to buy Liberty, let's say, you know, buy into the Liberty thing with Malone, mm-hmm. uh, you would get the same deal. So you could buy Berkshire and Liberty and you'd be fine. Mm-hmm. Well, if you did that, you would have massively outperformed the stock market. <laughs> you would have crushed the stock market. Berkshire has compounded money at almost 20% a year for 60 years. Yeah. Well, the stock market's been at nine, right? So, I mean, yeah. if you think about that, well, let's call it 70 years, you're outperforming the stock market at 20%. Um, you're basically doubling your money easily every four years. And if you did that for 70 years, you'd be looking at 18 doubles. Okay. 18 doubles. I mean, essentially that's almost enough to turn a thousand dollars into a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, the people who invested early with him, they don't have to work anymore. Oh my gosh, no. It's, it's like, there are these stories about these families in Omaha that just knew him and were like, okay, here you go. 
and now they have you know hospital na- named after them. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. Thanks to Buffett, but yeah, I don't know. It's a bit it, it, because it is odd. because he chose this fund of funds, or he didn't choose. He didn't choose it. I keep saying that, and that's incorrect. A fund of funds stepped up to the bet, and he did not. Buffett did not make it clear publicly that that is the narrow realm in which he was making this bet. He didn't, there are all these headlines about hedge funds and he didn't call it out. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's a curiosity to me. It's a bit of like, why do you spend so much time telling everybody that people who choose companies are maybe unreliable or maybe going to get, and maybe, maybe it's because that's what he really thinks. If it's not him, then nobody. I don't know. Well, I've certainly listened to Charlie and, and Warren a lot about this over the years. And on one hand, he knows, Warren knows this, because he went to Columbia and told everybody that he went to the fund managers at FMC and the Washington Post, two companies that he had influence on, and said, you guys need to invest like this. You know, follow, buy a few wonderful businesses, buy them when they're on sale. Here's a way to determine whether they're on sale or not. Mm-hmm. And make sure they have a big moat and they're run by good people. And those managers, independent of Warren, went out and created market crushing returns for the following 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And he used and them as an example. Right. He uses them in a, as an example. Exactly. So this isn't like you got to be a genius. These were just ordinary guys who were running money. And by the way, he brought a couple of those guys in to help manage Berkshire's money. Um, you know, the um, the two, the Ted and the Todds that came on board, those guys were, were pounding the stock market uh, independently of the stock market. So there's no question in my mind that Warren knows that there are investors out there who can beat the market. I and think when we what, sat at the Daily Journal meeting, Charlie Munger announced, well, I mean, I'm sure he'd said it before. He said that he has his money in Berkshire, in Costco, and with the investor, Lee Lu. So clearly Charlie Munger chooses an individual person to invest with as well. Right. So we know that there are these people out there. And um, I mean, Tony Robbins writes a good book about money that I really, really think is great. And, but in it, he calls these kinds of guys unicorns, right? That they're so rare and so unusual. And, and, and it effect, effectively, that's true. There are so few people who are able to do this successfully over a long period of time. But we've studied this a lot, Danielle, and I've come to the conclusion after listening to Warren and Charlie say exactly these kinds of things, that this isn't rocket science. This isn't where a 160 IQ beats a a low IQ. It's not that kind of a game. Um, Therefore, the unicorns aren't unicorns because they're super bright. Does that make sense? How did that even come into it? Where are the people? What do you mean? People are talking about whether or not they have to be extremely bright in order to no, nobody's, nobody said that yet. There's this idea that these people are very rare, right? So the first thing I think and a lot of people would include, genius in your mind. rare equals their geniuses, right? In some kind of way, they have, they have extra intelligence. And that's why, and this is, of course, what everyone thinks about Buffett, which to a certain degree is I true. Mean, quite frankly, I see that. Yeah. Buffett's okay. a genius. Buffett's a genius, right? I mean, I was okay. reading his biography and it's all about how he knows more than about the companies than the people who actually run the companies and can recite numbers off at a moment's notice. But you know what? That doesn't mean he has emotional intelligence. 
Well, don't wander there because we'd like to keep emotions out of this. So here's, here's what Buffett says. Feel better. Well, here's what Buffett says. Feel better about this. And that is that the weight of managing billions of dollars is enormous. You can't replicate returns that you got when you were managing a million dollars when you're managing a billion dollars. You just are hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. The weight of the money reduces your returns. Warren said that many times. I don't think he'd disagree with that at all. And he's also said that if he was only managing a million dollars, his rate of return would be 50% a year. He said, I think it would be 50% a year. Then he said, no, I know it would. In other words, as a brilliant genius investor, he could continue to replicate the results he had in 1955 to 1965 of about 50% a year because he's a genius, right? But we don't need to be a genius. All we need to do is knock out returns that are 15% a year, 20% a year. I mean, think about it like this. I got you. His level of geniusness enables him to create a superhuman level of returns. Superhuman level. Which we would love to have, but we need only half of that and we would be incredibly thrilled with ourselves. Yeah. So if Buffett has a 160 IQ and we have an 80 IQ, we should, and he's getting 50%, we should be able to get 25. Okay. I don't know about IQs. What's a good one? Does that mean I have a low IQ? (laughs) Well, the good news is this isn't about IQ. This is not about IQ. I truly couldn't tell you what a good IQ is. And Warren has said that so many times. And what he's also said is that the nature of managing other people's money necessarily reduces your rates of return to to the market. It has to. And that's why he was so confident to make that bet. It has to reduce the returns over a 10-year period to the market. Because why? Because as a fund manager, it is virtually impossible for you to sit there and do nothing for long periods of time. And that's the fundamental skill set of a rule one investor like Buffett and Munger, is they're capable of doing nothing for long periods of time. They control their capital. Nobody's sitting there saying, swing you bum, you got to swing at that pitch. Every time they throw a pitch, you have to swing at it. Buffett said many, many times, the art of hitting, of waiting for the fat pitch is the same as the art of being a successful investor. It's the, the knowledge of what the fat pitch looks like to you and waiting patiently until you get it. And that is absolutely impossible for fund managers to do. They are judged on a shorter term period than that allows. And as a result, they've got to swing at whatever pitch is being pitched. And by the way, this market we're in right now is an ideal version of that problem. It's a very pricey market and the fund managers have to swing. And when they're swinging like that, as Robert Schiller pointed out in his work at Yale called the irrational exuberance, when they're swinging at that stuff, their rates of return over the next 20 years are going to be zero to 5%. They're going to have bad rates of return. And Buffett knows that. His bet was a lock because he's know there's very few professionals out there who that pension fund manager could invest with that would play the game the way you should. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I read some article that the pension or not, he's not, it's not a pension fund, fund of funds manager um, said that he estimated his percentage of winning at 85%. So that was, he was giving himself pretty good odds there. Man. And he got smoked. I bet you Buffett would say his odds were approaching zero. Yeah. I would, I would think that. I bet that. All right, honey. I think it's time to wrap up. 
let's uh, call it this one. What are we talking about next time? I don't know. We need to start a little series on something. What do you feel like talking about? We're moving. Oh, by the way, happy almost Thanksgiving for everybody in America. Oh, yeah. I will be celebrating in true American style as much as I possibly can, bringing the values of turkey and overeating to Europe. <laughs> and by the way, can I plug? Can I plug right now? Okay. Okay. If you wanted to go over to rule1investing.com and you can click on getting a scholarship to the Transformational Investing Workshop. Three days, we just teach, absolutely 100% teaching. And we pack it. It's, you got to get in line to get in. The rooms are packed to the gills. And a huge percentage of people who are going there are from this podcast. So come on and join them. We look forward to having you. We do it once a month in Atlanta. Cool. There you go. We're not going to be together for Thanksgiving, Dad, unfortunately. I know. I, know. I don't see how you can have Thanksgiving in Switzerland. Oh, it's the best. I'm teaching all the Europeans <laughs> all about it. And they're super into it. And everybody like emails me now six months in advance and says, when's Thanksgiving? Because I don't want to miss it. And I'm like, it's the fourth Thursday in November. And then they're like, when's that? And then I have to find the date and send it to them. Because well, as usual, we're going to miss you desperately here. I wish you were here. Aww. Honey, I love no, you. And Thanksgiving. All right. So happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Time to go play. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because... I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.